0: Lord, you are indeed abundantly, exceedingly worthy, worthy of more than we could ever offer in our praise. But Lord, you have chosen to accept our worship, and for that we're grateful. So hear us this morning as we worship you in song and in prayer, um, as we celebrate your supper. And Lord, would you accept our worship now as we look at your word? Holy Spirit, would you help us to see and to understand? Lord, lead us to trust in Jesus more through what we hear this morning. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. So um, my theory for the book of Acts, as I've been saying, is that this is disciples making disciples, Jesus' disciples making disciples. And so one of the things I've been trying to do as we go through this is pull out what are the lessons that disciples are supposed to learn? And this this one, I think, for me anyway, it jumped right out to the front. There's a really important lesson that we have to learn. And I think what, what, as disciples of Christ, we're supposed to get from this is we're going to learn from Paul responsibility to authority. That's where it comes down to. And um, it's an important question. I think it's an important issue for us. So let's take a look at the text, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll try to unpack some of that a little bit. First of all, it says, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So Festus is the new guy. Remember, Felix last week um, heard Paul, held him in, in prison for a couple of years, uh, was hoping for a bribe you know, not really interested in justice or anything. We, we knew a lot about Fest, uh, Felix from last week because there's a lot of history written on him, and he was not a good guy. He was greedy, he was impetuous, he was violent, he was, you know, all these terrible things. Unfortunately, we don't have a whole bunch of historical information on on uh, Festus. There's just not there, much there. He, he served in the province probably from about 59 to 62 or 63. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just not a whole bunch going on there. There was a, a change of coinage. And so that's why we figure he was probably in about 59 as they would change the coinage to reflect the new governor of uh, Judea. So that's what we get from him. He served for a little bit of time. But I'll tell you what, the time period in which Festus served was the beginning of a pot boiling, there was a lot of things going on because what's going to happen, we're talking right now, we're around, ni- around 60, I almost said 1960, uh, we're around 60. And what's going to happen is in six years, 66 AD, the Jewish war is going to start. And four years after that, Jerusalem is going to be wiped out. So do you see where, what might be going on? There's a lot of things that are beginning to bubble now. There's a lot of, of tension that's building in, in the region of Judea. And so Felix, or Festus rather, has a job to calm things. He's, he's going to try to keep the peace in this area because it's going to be his head if he doesn't. So he's got some pressure on him. So that's why when you see him show up in the province, he goes to Caesarea, his, his main fort, his, his office, if you will, for only a couple of days and then heads down to Judea. He goes into Jerusalem because he's got to figure out what these Jews are up to, what are they so upset about, what's happening. And he must have had tons of stuff going on. There must have been a thousand different details. But one of the big ones for him when he first got to office is what am I going to do with this Paul? The Jews are really upset at this guy. He's been here for a while. He's a Roman citizen. I've got a responsibility to him. So I've got to figure out how to maintain the peace, how to calm things down here. So I've got to deal with this, this Paul. So what Luke gives us is his truncated itinerary. He doesn't give us the whole thing, every issue that he talked about. There were a bunch of other things happening, but for Luke and for us, we're gonna focus in on what did Festus have to do with Paul. And that's where we zoom in on. So uh, one of the things is, is Festus needed to clean up Felix's messes. Um, Felix wasn't a particularly effective leader and he left a lot of things undone. And, and so that's what he's gonna do. He's gonna focus on, on getting some of that cleaned up. And like I said, that's Paul. Now, what Luke tells us is the chief priests and principal men laid out their case and urged him asking for a favor. This is a theme that keeps coming up in this section. We heard in the last chapter seeking to do a favor for the Jews. Now they're asking for a favor. And then what we're going to hear Festus do is give them a favor or offer them a favor. So this favor for the Jews, I think, is part of that historical picture of there's a lot of tension. And so when they ask for a favor, there's this kind of threat behind it of of unrest. And so when Festus offers a favor, he is trying to seek that, that settlement. He's trying to settle things out. What he doesn't know is that they wanted Paul to go down to Jerusalem for one reason. There's an ambush to kill him. Doesn't that sound familiar? A couple of years ago, more than 40 men took a pledge. They swore we will not eat or drink until Paul's dead. Now, you would think those guys are dead because Paul's still alive. They haven't eaten and drink in 40 years. But actually, there was a, a, a clause in, in the oath that said, if it was impossible, then you were freed from it. But I'm thinking, you know, this, this plot that's still going on, these guys probably still have that desire. We want to kill Paul. So the Jews are still sticking with the plan from a couple years ago. Hey, send Paul down. We'll, we'll take care of this. You know, I, I know you've got to get things ironed out. And so there's this plot. Now... Festus probably didn't know about it. Remember how uh, we found out about it previously is Paul's nephew heard and reported. And there's none of that in this story. What we see is that the tension is still real. Paul is still an issue. Um, So Festus replies, no, Paul is being kept in Caesarea. So undoubtedly, Paul's Roman citizenship is at play here. I'm not turning a Roman citizen over to some other jurisdiction to take care of it. He's being held in Caesarea. That's where he should be tried. So he may have a sense that something's going on. Um, don't know how shrewd he was or how tricky they were, but he, he is, he's clear about this. We're gonna work together. I'm gonna try to do you a favor. I want you to be happy, but we're not gonna va- violate Roman law. He's in Caesarea, in Caesarea he stays. So what he invites them is, well, why don't you come on up to Caesarea? Come, come to us, and, and we'll try this case again, because Felix didn't finish it. We'll hear the case one more time, and we'll see what happens, see if we can't get this resolved. So that's, that's what he's going to face. That's where he's going. This is the, the trap he has walked into, um, the pressure that he's under. So when, they, when he arrives, right, so... Um, Uh, Festus, I'm going to confuse Festus and Felix because they should have had different names. (laughs) They should have been more different than that. So Festus goes back up. He spends a couple of more days. It says maybe eight or ten days in Jerusalem. Again, he had an agenda. He had an itinerary that he was working through. Doesn't matter. Skip that. Don't care. Here's what happens. He goes back to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. What that means is there was a raised dais, almost like a, a, um, a throne that he would come and sit on, and that's where he would hear the, the cases. So he takes a seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. So what Luke doesn't tell us is that the priests and the leading men of Jerusalem are already standing there waiting for him. They've already arrived. It, it's, uh, Paul is, is going to walk into this hornet's nest. So the next thing that happens is when he arrived... And that's talking about Paul, because he, he was sent for, he arrives, he walks in, and he is immediately surrounded by his accusers. Um, they had come down from Jerusalem, and they stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that the exact same thing that happened with Tertullus? He came in and threw accusations at Paul. He did this, he did this, he did this. And they, the Paul's response is, yeah, that's nice. You can't prove any of that. As a matter of fact, I can prove the opposite. What happened when I was in the temple? Was I causing a riot? No. Did I come to Jerusalem to argue with people? No. So all your accusations are falling down. Same thing. The the Jews have not changed their game plan. They're going to continue pursuing that same thing. So they start throwing these, these serious and numerous accusations against him. And so Paul argues in his defense. He says, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Weren't those the three things Tertullus lobbed at him? He violated the temple. He came to the temple to, to uh, sully it, to, to soil it, to, to turn it into a bad thing. He was going to bring Gentiles into the temple. He's been causing riots. That's a threat to Caesar because it's upsetting the peace of the nations. And he's part of a sect He's a a branch off of Judaism. He's violating Judaism. And so Paul responds again to those three charges. There's nothing different in this trial. It's the same thing. So you can see Paul is probably getting tired. You keep bringing the same charges against me. I keep shooting them down, and yet I'm still in custody. He's probably getting frustrated. At least I'm getting frustrated for him, if not. So that's, that's his response is, I haven't done any of those things. And so that's when Felix says, or Felix, I told you I was going to do that, right? When Festus says he wanted to do a favor for the Jews, he's doing them a favor again. The word for favor is charis, grace. He's doing them an unmerited favor, something just kindness to them. He asks them a very important question. He says, um, would you like for us to go to Jerusalem and I will hear his case there? Festus is a genius because here's what he's just done. He said, I will take Paul and I'll go to Jerusalem. I will do you a favor. We will go to your home country. That's where we'll go. But he also maintains the Roman portion of this. And I will try him. Not we'll go to Jerusalem and you have Adam. He's not abdicating his authority. He's not handing Paul over and saying, do with him what you want. He's still maintaining his authority over Paul but he's trying to help the Jews here. He's saying, let's let's do this. Do you see what a shrewd negotiator he is? He is really trying to make the Jews happy so the uprising will settle, but he's also trying to maintain Roman rule over this this place. So that was the offer. That was what he wanted. So listen to Paul's response to this. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be heard, where I ought to be tried. Paul has just said something that I think is super important to this discussion. Where is the right place for Paul to be tried? Shouldn't it be in Jerusalem under the Jewish law? Because these are God's people and God's law and that kind of stuff. He looks at them and he rejects that and he says, I ought to be tried before Caesar's tribunal. That is, is mind-blowing to me, is you would figure, let me be turned over to my people and handled there. So what we're going to look at real quick, what I want to tear apart on this a little, is I think we're being taught about civil authority and the Christian. <coughs> we're being shown what it looks like to be a Christian and what civil authority looks like for us. And in case you haven't noticed, you're under a civil authority that isn't necessarily Christian. So this is really applicable. And if you look around the world, we sang that song at the beginning, uh, Asian believers and and down in the Amazon, not everybody has a democratic, fair, and open society. And yet the church thrives. So we need to understand, first of all, what is civil authority? Well, civil authority is instituted by God. Um, It is like when you look in the Old Testament, especially, and it talks about the nations. The nations are nations, they're not individual people. It is a societal group of nations, and nations are ruled in some way, either by a king or an emperor or, you know, a democratic society or something. That's, that's something that just is, and the Bible recognizes that. It authenticates that. The next thing is that Jesus is, ultimate, is, is said to be king of kings and lord of lords. He doesn't say he is the king and there are no other kings. He is the Lord and there are no other lords. So his title as king of Kings and lord of lords admits there are kings and there are lords. But it also teaches us a very important thing. They're under him. They're they're under his authority. So he's the king of kings, the lord of lords. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, and we sang a bit of Revelation today, so I'm really happy. We're studying it on Friday, by the way, if you want to dig in on that. the Kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ. It's not like it's he shatters it and says, well, it's gone, there's, there's none of that anymore. So there's this ideal of civil authority as instituted from by God. as a matter of fact, I think the clearest example is in Roman or is in uh, John chapter nine when when uh, John chapter 9. No, well, maybe it is 9. No, it's verse 9. Um, John chapter something. <laughs> I don't remember. I wrote down the wrong one. When Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and Pilate comes into his headquarters and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Why are you talking to me? I'm the one that can kill you. You should be speaking to me. And Jesus finally opens his mouth. He looks at him and he says, you would have no authority over me unless it was granted to you from above. So why does Pilate have authority? Because God has granted Pilate authority. And Jesus has no fear of that. He says, you only have that because my father has given it to you. I don't fear you, Pilate. I'm not afraid of you. And then the place for us where is we hear it apply to us is Paul again, Paul in Romans chapter 13. Great chapter, read the whole thing if you really wanna dig into the question of civil authority and the Christian's response to it. But listen to this. The first couple of verses he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed And those that resist will incur judgment. So why is there a civil government in any nation around the world? Because God has established it. God has appointed it. He said this is what's going to happen there. So the authority that the government has over you to tell you that you have to drive 35 miles an hour when you go through my neighborhood. the, The authority that the government has over you to say that you can only get pasteurized milk the authority that the government has over you to say, this is your tax rate, that is instituted by God. And it's supposed to be there for a good reason. So Paul doesn't look at Festus and say, hey, I have nothing to do with you, man. I don't want anything to do with this. He looks at Festus and he says, I should be tried in this court. This is the appropriate place for me because this is the government that God has established. This is who God has put over me. So what's the role of civil government? What do we expect a civil government to do? Well, the scriptures are pretty clear. First Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors as set by him to punish those who do evil and, and uh, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good you should be that you by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So what is what is the civil authority's role here? I, I think it's a, actually a pretty good definition of justice is to punish evil and to praise good. So whatever form of government it is, their job, their God-ordained position, the reason that God has appointed them is for those two things, to punish evil and to praise good. That's the role of our government. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Paul, again, chapter 13 of Romans, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. He's speaking that of the Roman emperor. He is saying the Roman emperor who has on his coins that he is God, he's saying you should fear him, you should respect him, and he has a role to play in your life. That's startling, especially when we get to who the emperor is, which I'm not going to explain just yet. We'll hold on. You already know, but I'm going to hold on to that for rhetorical effect. So that's the role. That's, that's what God has established civil authority Civil government, that's what they're supposed to do. So when when we look at our government, what we want them to do is to oppose evil and to praise good. That's when when you go to the voting booth, look for people who are doing that. That's what we should be doing. So then, how do we respond as Christians to this authority? Remember what Paul said was we don't have to fear them. Peter, rather, Peter said, uh, honor everyone. So is that including the government? That's everybody. Who's not included in everyone? No one is not included. Double negatives. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. We're especially to love the church. We're to fear God. He's the only one that we are to fear. So do we fear the emperor? No, we honor the emperor. That's the command. So this is the picture of how we're supposed to do this. How are we supposed to live in relation to that civil authority? So what should we do? Well, first of all, you should be praying for them. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge all supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What you should be doing is you should be praying for your government. And, and Paul, notice he doesn't just say pray for them. He gives all these different forms of prayers, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. They should all be offered to God because he's given us civil authority. So our first response, our first responsibility to the authority we find ourselves under is to pray for them. So that we may lead quiet And peaceful lives the role of the government was to praise what's good to suppress evil that's what they're supposed to do so we pray for them that they would achieve that end so that we can leave quiet uh, live quiet and peaceful lives godly and dignified in every way that's what's good and pleasing in God's sight it's amazing how there's this consistency in in how the Bible teaches about these things like it's like written by one person or something like somebody had a, a big plan for it so we should pray What about um, what's going on in our section right now? So like Paul, what we should do is we should start in our our response to the government as we've been praying for them, then we assume we start with a a position of respect and deference to that government. And isn't that how Paul started with the, the council? He began, remember, in chapter 23, He looked at the council and he said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting in judgment on me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. He started with assumption that I'm going to have a fair trial. The response was he gets struck on the mouth and he rebukes the court. And those standing around him said, would you rebuke God's high priest? And Paul's immediate response is, I did not know. So Paul begins not with, I have been offended, therefore I'm going to fly in your face. He begins with respect. You, you violated my rights by having me struck, but I'm still going to respect the law. So we begin an approach to our government is with a sense of respect and deference. Until until they violate that. That's what Paul did, was when he was struck, he rebuked them, and he should have. Um, He repented for doing it the way he did, but they were wrong in what they did. And then finally, something that's not in the Bible, but I can still tell you you should probably do, is vote. They didn't get to vote in Paul's day. They didn't get to vote in the Bible. But we, as good citizens, and, and the implication here is, if you're going to be a good citizen, then you should vote. So that's what we should do is we should be voting, but we have to vote with this whole concept of what civil government is and should be in mind. And as we approach the the ballot box, we have to keep in mind, Lord, this is what you want government to do. I have a role in this government, and my role is to vote, so show me how to vote well. We should have people in here who are gonna uphold justice and oppress evil. That's, that's what they should be doing, is they should be praising good and repressing evil. So show me how to do that. I think that's an implication of the idea, be a good citizen, pray for these people, show respect and deference, and for, in our case, vote. That's important, because I don't know if you noticed, but next year we're gonna be voting. It's, it's coming up. Um, it's an amazing thing that we get to vote. This is, this is bizarre. This is the weird case in history where we are part of the process. Um, so so do that. So what happens um, when the government then steps beyond their good-given bounds? W- what do we do? This blanket statement of, uh, this isn't a blanket statement of respect and deference in all things at all times. There are instances in the Bible when civil disobedience was appropriate and rewarded, or at least praised. For example, in Exodus, the Pharaoh gets nervous because, man, these Hebrews are multiplying like, nobody 's business, so he grabs the midwives, and he says here 's what you're going to do if a boy is born, I want you to snap his neck when he's born. just kill him and the The midwives go out and refuse to obey Pharaoh, and God praises them for it they They get called out by name in the Bible because they refused to do what Pharaoh commanded because it was not it, it was not oppressing evil, it was extending evil. Daniel in the book of daniel, daniel's told. Uh, he's tricked by the other people who were jealous of him. Nobody can pray to anybody except for the king's gods, period, end of question. And what Daniel does is he goes, he opens his door, his windows facing Jerusalem, and he kneels down and prays. He says, the government, you don't have the right to tell me to worship false gods and to not pray to the true and the living God. So Daniel openly and blatantly violates the law. He says, that can't be. You don't have the authority to tell me that. And in the book of Daniel also, what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're told, bow down and worship this God. And if you don't, you get thrown in the fire. And their response is, God is able to deliver us from your hand. And if he doesn't, he's still good. So they openly refuse. I mean, you could see the whole nation on the plane. The music starts. Everybody bows down. And there's three dudes standing there looking, going, can't participate. They stood out like a sore thumb. And then there's another case in uh, Kings where Obadiah, he's a prophet, he hides the prophets of God that Jezebel was trying to kill. Jezebel and Ahab, Ahab was the legitimate king, not a very good one, matter of fact, probably the worst, but he was a legitimate king. And so when he goes beyond his authority and starts executing judges or uh, prophets, Obadiah hides them and he's praised for it. It's a good thing that he does. So there's times when government steps over the bounds and goes beyond the legitimate role that God has established for them and God's people must at that time resist. We must turn away from that. We can't follow with what they say. So sometimes when that happens, God is the one who's gonna judge them. For example, Isaiah chapter 10 says, when the Lord had finished all his works on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem... He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So what Isaiah is looking at, he's talking about the return from exile. And the picture is that God raised up Assyria to bring judgment on Israel because Israel was so horrible, wouldn't give the land rest, wouldn't honor their gods. So he raises up Assyria. Assyria comes in, carries the people away. God says, that was my intended purpose, is to bring them into judgment. But Assyria got ahead of themselves. the Arrogant heart of the king and the boastful look in his eyes. I did this. The reason I carried them away is because I'm so big. I'm so bad. I have so much power and authority. So God says when he's finished, he's going to deal with them. So in uh, chapter 10, verse 15, shall the axe boast against him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield he who lifts it. Or if a staff should lift him who is not wood, therefore the God of hosts will send wasting sickness amongst his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. So God says, Assyria, I raised you up. I used you for my purpose. You stepped out of bounds. I'm slapping you down. I'm bringing you under my control. So do you see there's this picture where government can step over their line. They can go beyond what they're supposed to do. They can become what they shouldn't be. So now time to play my history history card. The emperor at this time was Nero. Nero was horrible. He was a terrible person. And Paul says, it's his tribunal that I should stand under. It's Paul's writing in Romans that says, honor the emperor. Peter writes and says, fear God, but honor the emperor. Nero, of all people. So you don't look at the office and say, well, I don't like the person in the office, therefore I'm going to disrespect them. We don't have that option. We have to look at the office and say, God has established that office, as horrible as the person holding it is, and I must respect them. Now, I sympathize with that being in the military. I have worked for some folks that I thought were horrible. But, you know, I still had to pop a salute and say, yes, sir, even though I didn't particularly care for that person. So I kind of get this, that's drilled into my brain, but for civilians, we may not understand that. I, I don't like the person, why should I show him respect? Because what God has told us, he has established that office. He has established that person in that office and they are due your respect. The only time you get to step out of line, the only time you get to oppose them and look away from them is when they have crossed that line. And then you must respectfully and honestly say, no, I can't do that. So if our government was to come and say, you know, Christian churches are great and everything, but you're going to have to worship this as well. You know, just put put a picture of whatever it is up on your wall and, and include that in your worship. We would have to go, absolutely not. It, it's not going to happen. We can't do that. And we would just look the government in the face and say, it's, we're not going to do it. There's threats rumbling around about removing churches' tax-exempt status um, under certain conditions. And what we would have to do is if they came out and said, well, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, we're taking your tax-exempt status away, you do what you think is right. We're gonna do what we think is right. So that's the idea is the government can get out of step. The government can go beyond what they're supposed to do. By the way, tax-exempt status is not in the Bible. It's not a God-given right. It is something, if I can just, go on a tangent here for a moment on politics. Why would the US government establish tax-exempt status for churches? And why would they allow pastors to say that their housing allowance is tax-exempt? What's the point in doing that? Well, it's a similar question to, why does the government give you a tax break if you have kids? The, the The tax theory is, you tax what you don't want to happen, you give breaks on taxes for things you do want to happen. So it's good for a society if the population is growing or at least maintaining. So we will give you breaks for having kids. We don't want to defer you from having kids. We don't want to deter it. So we'll give you a break on it. Why would they do that for churches? Well, because 60, 70 years ago, it was viewed as a good thing to have a church in a neighborhood. That was going to be a good influence on the neighborhood. There would be a soup kitchen, maybe, or a, a, a program for helping people who were uh, alcoholics, or whatever it was. It's a good thing to have a church in the neighborhood, so we'll give them a tax break. Well, that's not what people see it as anymore. Now, you know, cities look at ta- churches and go, "It's it's a tax hole. If a church wasn't in that place, we'd be getting tax revenue off that." And and are they really doing anything? Are they really contributing anything? I mean. What's up with that? So that's why beginning, society is beginning to look at churches and go, maybe we don't need them around anymore. Let's tax them. So that's, that's the tax theory. Just as an aside for the tax-exempt status, it's no guarantee. Other nations don't have it. Other nations have it even better because, like in Germany, if you're Lutheran church, you get money from the government. You get, the government taxes the people and gives money to the church. So it's, it's all over the place. And you know what? Throughout the whole world, the church does okay. Taxed, untaxed, supported by taxes, they do all right. So this is this is what we should be looking for. This is where we should be going. By the way, one last thing. We are an evangelical free church. What does that mean? Does it mean we're free of evangelicals? <laughs> Thank heavens no, because <laughs> it would be pretty empty here. Does it mean that we don't charge uh, tax or we don't raise money? You know, you just come in and do it for free. No, we, we're going to pass the basket and ask you to donate money. Where the term originally came from was in the old country, in Scandinavia, in, in Norway, those, those churches, the state established a Lutheran church as the official church of the nation. Other churches formed and said, we are free from the government. We are independent from the government. So when they came to America, they brought that name with them. They're evangelical, they, they believe in the scriptures, they're free from government control, and they're a church. Every church in America is a free church. It's illegal for the government to establish a religion in our nation. So we had to change what we mean by free here. <laughs> so we, when we say we're evangelical free, we talk about congregational rule and independence of the local churches, but that's not what it originally meant. It's important to bring that up because I think it fits with that whole picture of the relationship between the church and the civil government and how we're supposed to fit together. So don't forget we're a free church. The, the US government, the, the, the governor of the state doesn't come in and tell you who your pastor is gonna be. That's we decide that. So we're free. So sometimes the church or the, the state can step beyond what its responsibilities are. Sometimes it can go over its bounds. One last thing that, to bring up about the church and the government and everything is, and I think this is important because in our, our, our civil environment right now, it seems like the answer for everything is more law. If something happens, we need a new law to address that. And, and if we put another law on the books, that's going to somehow fix it. That's not always the best case. I don't think that's the best way to do it. So within the church, if we should have a disagreement within the church, or if two people within the church should have a disagreement and and somebody feels they were wronged, is it best to go to the civil government? Ideally, the civil government should be establishing peace and opposing evil, so that sounds like it's not a bad thing. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, no, you guys should handle it yourselves. So if we had two two believers, maybe God continue to spare us from this, but should we have two believers in our church who go to it with each other and have a disagreement, we should be able to help them iron that out. We don't have to get a legal requirement, a legal document to say that this is how it should be. If both people are submitting to the church, we could come in and say, well, let's get some people together and talk through this. So here's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to hear trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not be defrauded? This is from Paul who just looked at the Jewish tribunal and said, I should be before Caesar's tribunal, not these folks. And he tells the church, don't take your court cases to the unbelievers. Handle it yourself. Is that hypocritical? Is he heading in two different directions? Well, first of all, are the chief priests and the leading men of Jerusalem believers? That's been the problem, is they're not. When Paul brought up, hey, I'm going to the Gentiles, God sent me to the Gentiles, they exploded. So Paul's not violating his own principle here. He's he's refusing to let unbelievers hear his case. So then who's left? Well, the church in Jerusalem could, but I don't think the unbelievers in Jerusalem are gonna buy it. So he goes, he says, I am not gonna get justice from this level. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. He's able to navigate these complex political interactions and not violate his own principle of, look, if you have a problem in the church, handle it. Just deal with it yourself. Don't take it to the courts. But at the same time, he can look at the Jews and go, I don't wanna be tried by them. I don't stand a chance in the universe of getting a fair trial out of him. I belong before Caesar's tribunal, and that's who should hear my case. And so that's the picture that he's in. That's where he's at now. Is he's, he's recognizing the, the legitimate authority of a civil government. He's recognizing that this sub-government, this, this occupied force, is not going to give him justice. He tried, didn't he? He didn't, he didn't argue when they took him before that tribunal beforehand. He walked right in and said, yeah, let's do this. And when they proved that they would not be just and fair, now Paul is saying, I reject that. I will not deal with that court because they won't treat me fairly. So that's why it's okay if you appeal something. If you get into court and you wind up appealing, if you don't feel you've gotten justice from that level, then appeal it. Because what did Paul say? He said, look, if I've done anything worthy of death, I'm not afraid of death. But, I'm not going to let injustice reign. I didn't do anything worthy of death. Therefore, I'm going to appeal it. So Paul is not running. He's not trying to hide and say, what kind of legal loophole can I get through here? He says, look, if I've done it, kill me. I deserve it. But if I haven't, I demand justice. And so his final statement, I appeal to Caesar. Now, the the... Roman citizen had the right to appeal their case unless they had committed one of three things, and I don't remember all of them. One was murder, uh, one was uh, treason, and I can't remember the third one. If any of those were, uh, were the case, then they couldn't appeal it to Caesar. But at this point, and this is documented outside the Bible, this was a Roman right was to appeal to Caesar. Now, in a, about 100 years, they're going to have to modify that because people were appealing to Caesar for everything. But at this point, Paul says, look, I don't think I'm going to get a fair shake anywhere. I want Caesar to hear my case. Is he going to get a fair shake from Caesar? you imagine if Caesar gets upset with him? Nero looks at him and goes, you're wasting my time. Kill this guy. But he's appealing to the highest legal authority. He's got that theology in his mind of this is a God-established authority, and I will submit to that. So he appeals to Caesar. That was his call. Now, what it says then is Festus conferred with his counsel. The, the, it sounds like the right to appeal to Caesar was automatic, but Festus says, now, wait a minute, we've got to review this. Does he have a legitimate right to appeal? Um, it, what, what exactly are the charges that he's, he's accused of? Um, can he appeal this? He doesn't just automatically slam the gavel down and go, all right, cool, not my problem anymore. He wants to review it, make sure it's legal, make sure it's just, make sure this is gonna work. And then he says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. That's where he's going to head. Paul has been stuck in Caesarea for two years. What did Jesus tell him the night before he headed to Caesarea? You will be my witness in Rome just like you were in Jerusalem. Paul's been stuck. He th- it must have felt great. Right off the bat, Jesus says that the next day, poof, he's out of Jerusalem. Great, we're going so for him to appeal to Caesar is not, he's not like, you know, being passive and saying, oh, God will do whatever he wants. He says, no, God has told me I'll go to Rome. This opportunity has opened up for me to appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar, send me to Rome. Jesus already told me I'm going. So he's, he's ready to head there. That is where he's heading. He's, he's, he's going to go there next. Now, he's not there. We, gotta, we got some more work to do before he gets on the road. Um, one of the things that the uh, proconsul had to do if they were sending somebody on appeal to Rome was they had to write a letter outlining the circumstances, what was going on. So what we're going to see next week is Festus is going to dig into this a little bit more. He needs somebody with some expertise in this Jewish thing because it's new to him. So he's going to meet with Herod and say, Herod, would you hear this and tell me what's going on? Because I got to write a letter. I got to write this letter and send it with him. So Let me know what happens. So that's where we're going to go next week. As we get, uh, uh, Herod is going to step in and and kind of help, um, uh, help Felix or Festus. I almost did it again. Help Festus with uh, deciding this case and, and sending Paul off to where he's supposed to be. So that's that. Let me pray and then we'll we'll celebrate communion. Lord, we live in a, a complicated world. It's, it's really, honestly, no more complicated than it was back then. Um, navigating the, the political currents that were going on and all the scheming and wheeling and dealing and backbiting and all that that was happening back then, Lord, it's, it, the human heart hasn't changed a whit. It's it's the same thing that's happening today. The difference for us, Lord, is we have a role in, in this uh, decision. So, Father, I pray for your church in America. I pray for your church in America. Um, in Los Angeles County, I pray for your church in Lancaster. Lord, would you help us to look beyond the local politics to the eternal, to recognize, Lord, that you have established authorities. And Lord, grant us wisdom as we go to the ballot box, as we exercise our role as, as good citizens. But Lord, don't ever let us for a moment put our hope in what's going on here. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the governor of governors. You are the president of presidents. Lord, you are over all human authority, and it derives its place from you. And Lord, as we've seen with Assyria, so here you will judge those who abuse, who step outside, who oppose you in their role as civil authorities. And so, Lord, grant us good leaders. Grant us leaders who will want to uphold what is true and good and right and oppress what is evil instead of getting those two categories swapped. And so, Lord, have mercy on us as your church. May we be good citizens, first and foremost, of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven before we are citizens of earth, so that we can be better citizens of earth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.